Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Well, welcome to Resiliency Within. I also want to let our listeners know that we're also live streaming on Facebook Live on the Resiliency Within Facebook page if you want to see Leslie and I in person. So today I have my dear friend, Reverend Leslie Carroll. I met her, I can't, I, I, can, I can't believe it's only been eight years ago. Leslie, I always think that we've known each other for so long. We've had a lot of shared experiences. And also we have some similar philosophies about, about healing and about humanity. And during this time right now in our world, I thought who could be a, who would, she would be such a wonderful guest to share with us some of her perspectives. So we've, we've, we've called this the he, healing the wounds of, of conflict. Let me say a little bit more about Leslie, and then we'll get started. So Reverend Leslie Carroll serves as the prison ombudsman for Northern Ireland. Yet she's dedicated her life to the pursuit of peace and reconciliation. To her, this mission is a lifelong calling. Her efforts extend beyond the borders of Northern Ireland, and she has been instrumental in fostering dialogues for peace and reconciliation in regions such as Rwanda, Nigeria, Kosovo, and Croatia. Inspired by her experience, Reverend Carroll introduced the Community Resiliency Model to Northern Ireland, and this initiative has led to the establishment of a group of Community Resiliency Model teachers who are actively disseminating the healing skills of CRIM throughout the Northern Ireland community and even beyond. And actually, I'm going to Northern Ireland in December to do another CRIM teacher training, the first one I've done um, on your continent um, since the pandemic. So, but in these, yes, and in these challenging times, for our global community. I, um, Leslie's perspective is so important and she has most generously um, offered to share her insights and the valuable lessons she has acquired on her remarkable journey, which hopefully can offer some guidance and inspiration for us all today. So Leslie, welcome. And as we get started, anything on your mind that you wanna talk about first? Oh my goodness, Elaine, nobody ever invites me to talk about whatever's on my mind. Normally, my job is to listen to what's on everybody else's mind. So that's a bit of a shock. You didn't warn me. (laughs) Well, you know, there's always a surprise when you're talking to Elaine. Absolutely, yeah. What's on your mind to get started? I would, you know, today today was a kind of a hard day in work, even though it's Monday, it's supposed to be better at the beginning of the week than the end. And I, I kept going around in my head all day today to, I must say to Elaine, healing from conflict takes such a long time. It takes such a long time. And that is the one thing I suppose has been settled on my mind all day, the length of time it takes. Well, and knowing and being in Northern Ireland and certainly learning from you and others that there was a very um, difficult time in in not so far away history where Northern Ireland and Belfast was torn apart. So maybe if you could share a little bit um, with our listeners what happened there, because some may not be familiar with what I know you call the troubles, others call the conflict. (laughs) 
about what happened in a very small geographical area, actually. Yes. Um, so for those of you who, who don't know, and even for those of you who do know, no harm to remember that the island of Ireland is divided into two parts, north and south. And there are six counties um, in, in the north, which is a tiny little piece at the top of the island. And those top six counties belong actually with Great Britain and the United Kingdom. And the other counties um, across Ireland, they form the, the state of Ireland, the Irish Republic, if you like. So we have a border that is significant um, on the island and a set of relationships that are quite complex uh, because of, of the geographical location of all the bits and pieces. Um, and the people of the northern six counties would share different political outlooks. So some would like to remain as part of the United Kingdom and look to Westminster and London for their government. This is this is a very simplified version, by the way. Um, others in the, the six northern counties look to Dublin in Ireland and they would like their government to be there. And we call the people who look towards Dublin nationalists or Republicans. And we call the people who look to London and Westminster, we call them unionists or loyalists. Um, and I mean, the friction and division across this island has gone on for generation after generation. But the most recent um, outbreak of violence, if you like, was uh, lasted from approximately 1969 up until the peace agreements in 1998. So that is a very sustained length of time for people to be um at war, in a struggle, in a conflict with each other. And over those years, so I was born in 1962, so I remember very little before the beginning of the Troubles in 1969. I, I'm from the loyalist unionist community, which tends to be Protestant in their religious outlook. And for us, we, we tended to call it the Troubles. For the Catholic nationalist community, which sorry, for the nationalist Republican community, which tended to be Catholic um, in outlook. Uh, there was a religious component to our conflict. They t tended to talk about the conflict or, or even the war, actually. Back in the day, they would have talked about the war or the armed struggle. Conflict is a kind of a settled, more academic name that we use now for what happened. So I suppose, Elena, might be useful to say about what happened. What, what was it like, maybe, during Let's those years? Yeah, please. Yeah, so, so people get a flavour of that, of what we're talking about when we say we lived in conflict. So um, I grew up in, in the country, not in Belfast at all. So in, the, in a rural community, which was very small, divided community where we all knew our neighbours, but we all knew who our who our neighbours' friends were and who our neighbours not friends were. So we could differentiate and we'd be very nice to each other, but still it remained at a level of politeness with some people, whereas there was a more intimate friendship with others, depending on our political outlook. Um, and, and it was a daily occurrence for me um, going to school to see army, the army and their Land Rovers with their guns um, we would have been regularly stopped on the way to school, on the way to youth organisations in the evenings. Just when you were out and about, we would have regularly been stopped by the army and asked to show identification. If we didn't um, 
cooperate. We might have had to have our car searched. Get out of the car. You empty everything out. You let them have a look just in case you're carrying anything you shouldn't carry, i.e. a bomb or a gun. So so we would have had um, the army as as a normal sight on our streets. And really, I, I don't think... On reflection, I don't think it's normal to grow up with guns on your front doorstep, but in Northern Ireland, it was it was normal. And the reason for the army that being there, and we have an armed armed police force as well in those days. The reason for that was to protect the community generally from uh, the terrorist groupings, as we understood them. So the Irish Republican Army. Also, the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force and the Ulster Defence Association. So there were terrorist elements on both sides of this who planted bombs, who shot people dead, who did all sorts of things that disrupted community life to a very high degree. Um, And I remember, you know, it's funny, you remember silly little things. So I remember sitting in school as a probably a 10 year old. And I sat beside the window and there was an army barracks across the road. So that would have been a target for one of the terrorist organizations. So to protect us children, we put sellotape on the windows. Do you know what sellotape is? Oh, what's sellotape? Sellotape is like sticky tape. Okay. Like you put on a parcel. Yeah. So they used to put sticky tape on the window and then they told us. If the bomb goes off, the, the glass won't shatter around you because the sticky tape will hold it together. Well, this was, of course, complete and utter nonsense. Well, how scary <laughs> but that was the kind of head, though, to be I, growing up in that, that kind of atmosphere, right? Yes, exactly. So that that's really what. So we call that the troubles. Well, um, over like two thousand people dead. You know, oh, people shot indiscriminately, bombs going off indiscriminately. Um, and there would have been warnings with these bombs. So so the organizations would have phoned in and said, we've planted a bomb in a shop in the town centre. You need to clear the town centre. Then we'd all have been cleared. We didn't know if it was real or not real. Sometimes it was real. Sometimes it wasn't real. So that's the kind of disruption we were living with. I know that when I've gone to Northern Ireland and I've been introduced to so many different people that lost their family members and, and it was it was kind of indiscriminate. So it was not just older people that lost their lives. There were children that lost their lives as well. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, so it was No, just... no, I think it was two, 217 children, which, you know, compared to today's figures in, in um, Israel-Palestine is nothing, but that's 217 lives that shouldn't have been lost by bullets that went astray, by bombs that went off, by plastic bullets that were fired into crowds to disperse them, etc. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that also really struck me was that you could live next door to someone who was in the opposite camp and they may be your neighbor and your friend. And then all of a sudden things changed and then you had to be hypervigilant and maybe suspicious that this person who used to be your neighbor could possibly cause you harm. And so that kind of tension that everyone is experiencing is not good not only for the heart and the mind, the spirit, but not good for the body. No, absolutely not. So since Cillian, since I learned the, about the, the skills, the community resiliency model skills and program with you, I understand so much more of what that was probably doing to us as we grew up. And, and I think the the we all know anybody who's lived through conflict or 
or looked at conflict or anything like that or war, um, outright war will know that the breaking of trust is one of the major, major things. Usually you don't know who to trust. You're suspicious all the time um, and you can be let down so easily or alerted um, so easily. But from from the resiliency model, I, I've been learning about how that makes us um, in our body. And even as I'm talking to you, I can feel my breath is getting very short <laughs> and I have like a real knot in my guts, which I wouldn't have noticed before. But because I've done that with you and I'm sitting talking to you and I'm thinking I need to stop and apply a skill because I'm getting out of sync here talking about this stuff. Well, see, there you go. They're reading the nervous system. And I think, thank you for sharing that, um, Leslie. But no I have to actually know that you have two wonderful little furry creatures in your home that are some of your resources <laughs> that help you in those times when you might be feeling that breathing comes a little bit more rapidly and you might feel some tension. So I'm wondering if you can call them up in your mind's eye right now and if that might help your tension or not. Let's just, let's see. Yeah, yeah. It does. Yeah. You can see you calming down a bit. Yes, it, it 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 gets there. It definitely gets there. And so I think what's so important, and, and thank you for being so transparent, is that when we call up things that have been hard for us in our lives, and certainly war, conflict, the what happened in Northern Ireland, that we can start feeling similar sensations that we experienced during that time of the conflict. And I think that was sure. one of the when we were talking, that we know that the terrorist attack that happened from Hamas to Israel, and now we have Israel defending itself in terms of the Palestinians. And I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't want to talk about the politics because no. my life is about the humanitarian response in terms of how do we heal people that may be suffering. And I know that people are suffering not only in Israel and also Palestine. Um, and also to say that, you know, many Palestinians are not connected to Hamas and actually don't like Hamas, but also there are many places in the world where there's suffering going on right now. And so having this knowledge of this interceptive awareness and tracking your nervous system like you just did so beautifully also gives you a way to come back into a more balanced state in terms of um, sensing the calming down so that you continue to do the things that you want to do in life without not feeling that there's always a tension. And I think when I first met you and you came to London to meet me, it's like you knew that Northern Ireland needed skills like this. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. You know, why did you think these set of skills? I know you had read my book, but tell us more about that. Sure. Um, so I, I, I had done a lot of work um, over the years with people, people who were victims of the violence, but also people who were perpetrators of the violence. And it from those those many relationships, and they were there were many, and they were at different degrees of depth. And some of them were very deep friendships where we did talk about what it, what it was like in a very deep way to be the victim or to be the perpetrator of some of the acts of violence that occurred across Northern Ireland. Um, so I had an awareness of 
the the injury that people were carrying and even for perpetrators there there is injury there is moral injury sometimes um surprisingly i suppose uh for for them as well but there i mean there's obviously injury for everybody um and thinking about that and and working with people who wanted to make peace with each other um one of the things that i could see happening off and in the conversations where we would bring people together or we would we would um, bring them to a point of talking about how they would look to make peace with their neighbour. One of the things that I would see happening was that they would get a really long way with this and they would be really invested in it. And I would have had no doubt that they wanted to achieve a new relationship with the enemy, I suppose, is the simplest way of describing it. And, and it looked like we were just about to get get there and then something happened and everybody went straight back into their corners and I couldn't find a way to get past that um, and of course you know uh, we all react in those situations differently so in some occasions that have been parting me just want to force it through now force it through but it was never going to work unless people were all on board with it and on other occasions that I find find myself saying well, let's let's just pause and we we'll take another six months and then we'd take another six months and the whole thing would replay couldn't find a way to get past that um, and, you know, I, it wasn't because I was looking for an answer to that in particular, Elaine, that I headed off to London to your training. But I did head off to your training um, and thought, I've read that book. There's something in it. Maybe. Maybe there's not. I'd better go and find out. Um, so that was 2015. Headed off to London, did the training. And suddenly these two pieces came together for me, this piece of not being able to get us over that final line um, and the piece around trauma, toxic stress, resilience and all of that. And it seemed to me that a lot of what happened at that moment where people couldn't make that last leap over the line um, into some scary space where they were doing something different with the enemy and doing something different front with themselves that didn't happen precisely because people's body took the lead yeah. and their brain went offline and so when you think about that i mean just even looking at someone or hearing the stories of someone you know um the perpetrator and vice versa that the survival brain goes into a play exactly they want to run out of the room or they want to fight with the person and that's why we say undigested trauma can lead to mm -hmm. more trauma and conflict and you know, if we are going to have a world where reconciliation is possible and that we can have a more peaceful wor world, I think that we have to have the trauma-informed lens of what's happened to the nervous system. Because we've heard the same things from our um, a colleague, Sam Habimana, that I think you've met online, who um, yes. who's doing work in Rwanda with the, the genocide survivors and with the perpetrators that are now getting out of prison, finding out that that getting into your zone of well-being, tracking your nervous system so that you can stay in a more balanced state is foundational and essential to be able to have a dialogue about how to make a different world. Because when you do that, your prefrontal cortex is available to you. There's more blood flow going into your prefrontal cortex. And I think what we've seen, and I know that you're very dedicated to this too, Leslie, is that you can be more compassionate towards yourself and then more mm -hmm. to compassionate towards others, because when we see these acts of violence and war, compassion doesn't seem to be in existence. And if we don't have some way of 
bringing that back and sensing it back, you know, then I think we're doomed to never being able to resolve that kind of extreme violence that happens with a genocide or the conflict that happened in Northern Ireland. So, so when you came and you learned about the model, what did you do with it next? How was it that you could maybe start to think about this in your piecework and your reconciliation work? Okay, so I, I thought to myself, what, what if people were to learn this? And I don't mean in a really complex university kind of way, because there are some really, really good university programs here around trauma um, and, and what it means and all of that. So I didn't I didn't I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking here we've got a set of six skills that can be learned very quickly, like I'm an advocate for a try all of the time. Six okay. skills can be learned very quickly, very cost effective, all of that. Um, what if we were able to skill people in this way? Um, and, you know, you, I, I always used to think to myself how disappointing it must be for people who pushed forward on this very risky journey of reconciliation and they'd given their all to it and they couldn't get themselves over the line. And they disappointed themselves again and again and again. And we, sorry, I disappointed myself. We all disappointed ourselves. What would it be like to change that world from a world of disappointment to a world of hopefulness? Um, and could these skills do something with it? So I came home and I, I pondered that for long enough. And I set myself then the, the task of going around some of our victims and survivor groups, and um, particularly the providers of victim and survivor services and saying to them, look, you might want to take the risk on this model. We eventually made made, uh, made an agreement. We raised the funds. I, I don't know, was it twenty five thousand pounds or something? Um, and and brought Elaine from America, um, and a set up the training for a number of well placed people within the victims and survivors world, who were trained in the skills, and that was the first cohort of people that we trained to be trainers in the community resilience resiliency model in Northern Ireland. And so what are your reflections as you've seen people start to implement? Um, and we have had more than the first 25 that we trained, right? We sure have. <laughs> yeah, so now you have a cadre of, of CRIM teachers. So what have you seen, if you can share with us, has it had an impact? Do you think it helps? Um, give us your ideas about how the implementation has gone when we're talking about reconciliation and peacemaking. Sure. Um, I think that, uh, I think I was following on from that, to be brutally honest, I was disappointed because I don't think that that sector was able to lift and run with the model in the way that I hoped. And I think that's fair enough. And there are all sorts of reasons possibly for that. And Elaine, your wisdom was helpful because you explained that often um, often in countries you find, or, or even I suppose in, in parts of the US, which are like countries to us, I would have to say, um, you, you said that often your first cohort of people trained weren't the people who who led the charge, if you like, who took lifted the ball and ran with it. It was often your second wave of 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 trainees um, who who tried to run the thing forward, and uh, and that has been that's been our experience. So there were one or two from that very first training, but really it was the second group of people that we trained who who have lifted it and begun 
them to run with it. Um, and, you know, it's really it's just really interesting to observe how you can have a vision for something. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's only a vision and the vision has to be contextually adapted. So my vision was this would this would go into the victims and survivors sector and the victims and survivors would be the people who discovered the value of this and they would lead this into society. That's not how it's happened. So it has fallen out into all sorts of other sectors. So we find people working in schools using this model. We find people um, working in healthcare looking to use this model. We find a lot of people working in community, actually, and um, people working with young people who spend a lot of their life on the streets, people who work with the homeless. They are the people who have lifted and run with this model. And that's also interesting to me because often the people who seem to be in the front line of a conflict aren't, well, often they're the people we, we focus on, but they aren't the only people. There are a myriad of other people behind that front line who are suffering from um, the memories, the experiences, the lives that they lived. And so as you've seen that become more um, actualized with with um, crim teachers out there doing that, you think it has Im impacted the survivor network at all, the victim and survivor network? You see, I think that the time is coming around again for that too sit into that world and interestingly uh, you know here in Northern Ireland one of the things we had done was to separate out victim ser services from general services and I think there's a rethink on that because actually you can't do that trauma services or trauma services resiliency services or resiliency services it doesn't it, you know how you got yourself there what your life story that got you to that need is that's not the key. The key is the need. Well, and I think that what I've heard, too, is that, the, the you know, now we're saying that the peace accords happened a long time ago. And so now you yeah. have children of the people that were living through the conflict and the troubles. And some of them have digested the trauma as well. So that the services that are needed are 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 more encompassing. Than Much maybe, wider. Yeah, wider. And so that's what I've heard about where CRIM can really come into play again. And, and not only children, but also grandchildren, Elaine. So we would find people coming forward for counselling, for example, because of the conflict. And they're grandchildren of people they never met. Uh, yes. Grandchildren of people who were killed during the conflict. But the memory of that person and the story of that person within their family's life has deeply traumatised them. And so they are coming forward looking for services. I think what you're saying is that, that multi-generational, so historical trauma, mm -hmm. how it's not only what's happening in the present moment, but what happened in the past. And when you started out by saying there's been generations, so that's absolutely that the hope of the nervous system is, if we rewire that, could that possibly change the trajectory? And I Hi. think you and I are both <laughs> the same thinking. We think it can. And so we're we going to take, take a short break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with... Um, Reverend Leslie Carroll, and tell us a little bit more about the work and also her thoughts about how she is accomplishing her peace work with, um, and also this very important concept of reconciliation. So um, we'll be back in just about uh, two minutes and you'll hear from our sponsor. And so this is Elaine Miller-Karis just saying, come back, we'll be back in just a moment or so. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. 
The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Reverend Leslie Carroll. She is the prison ombudsman of Northern Ireland, and she has worked um, tirelessly through her life um, in the area of reconciliation and peacemaking. And we're talking about how important it is to integrate the, the body into the interventions that we have to bring people together. And she was just talking about the field of epigenetics and I, maybe if we can talk a little bit more about that, Leslie, because we were talking about it offline when we were on Facebook Live. Sure. Give us your perception of why that's so important when we think about the historical trauma. Sure. So, I mean, a lot of the research now is telling us, um, and you'd probably know more about it than me, but I know enough to know that we we are shaped by what 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 comes with us from the past. And the research says that that begins to affect our genetic makeup and we're genetically modified in light of the trauma in particular that we're experiencing. Um, and, you know, I'm sitting here at the junction of past and future. Um, we have a we have a debt to those who are ahead of us. Um, and I, I think that there is something about us dealing with ourselves in the here and now in a way that means what we pass on to the next generation is as helpful as it can be. So if it is true that trauma can shape us genetically, then it has to be true that we can unshape that um, genetically 
as well. And the unshaping of that, I suppose, is what you call and what I call rewiring the brain. So if we can rewire to allow the next generation to have a lighter burden from us because they'll have enough burdens of their own, then I think that that we should be trying to do that. Well, and, and Leslie, I think that I could not have said it better. And, you know, I think that's such a, a you know wonderful statement. And then we go, well, how do we do that? How do we rewire the brain? You know, when I was getting ready for today's show, I came across um, a quotation from the Aglala Sioux, you know, Native Americans from the United States, and from one of the, the a wisdom that they said, there can never be peace between nations until it is first known that true peace is within the souls of the humans. And so, you know, yeah. if we, and how do we, how do we get that peace inside of ourselves if we've yeah. lived such horror? Because it may replay as traumatic flashbacks, but it's physical, right? So we can say, stop traumatic flashback. That doesn't necessarily stop it. But if we can, for just a moment, like when I invited you to think about your dogs, right? That's such a simple thing. Mm -hmm. yes. It's practiced enough. It can actually, what you said, bring you to the present moment and it can quell those tapes that have to do with the trauma. And that's why I think, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, you have to tell me if I'm wrong, but I think when we first met, I think you got that from reading my book. And that's what was a propelling thing. How do we stop that? Because you yourself had the trauma of people in your neighborhood being killed. And, you know, it's like, how do you remove that? I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that notion of being in the present moment is is a really interesting one as well. Um, and learning to be in this moment to create a better moment for the future because what we're carrying can actually cre create um, a more toxic space as we pass it on. Uh, you know, con conflict doesn't allow us to live in the present moment because conflict has us on alert all of the time. So even in little things, you know, and I was thinking about when I was a child and because we had this uh, this um, experience of booby trap bombs, you know, so you didn't know where they were, where they were going to be set and they, they were set in odd places. They would have been put, for example, in ordinary waste bins on the city streets. So, I mean, you've experienced that in, in the States as well. Um, so with that experience, my mother used to say, don't don't kick that. You don't know what's in it. So a child walking along the street, you automatically kick something that's lying in your way. It's all part of your childish playfulness. We weren't, we were told not to do that. So you were put on alert. That's just one example. You were on alert all of the time. So just being present to now didn't exist because you had to be present to what might happen. So bringing us back to the presence of now, to the healing of my human spirit, in order that my human spirit can be better in the world, in order that the world can be a better place. All of that is so significant. And I think the resiliency model allows me to begin to do that. But it's hard. It is really hard because and it sounds so simple. And I think that's what was what was partially attractive to to me in the model was its utter simplicity. And I, I was like childlike unbelieving in the face of the simplicity of it. I absolutely believe in the simplicity of it. But once you begin to imply, apply, sorry, this very simple model to your own life, there's nothing simple about it because this simple model has such complexity to deal with in all our own human spirits, such massive complexity. Well, but I, it's fit I, for it. You know, the model's fit for it. 
Well, it's fit for it because it's like it, it can be complex to learn how to read your nervous system, especially if reading your body has is filled with with, with suffering. And just even noticing yeah. something can go, oh, that's the hypervigilant that I know because I've lived with that. And I think what's so important about what Leslie is saying is that we know that that when we are always on alert, that there are stress hormones, chemicals being pumped in our system that were only meant for short acting. But there's like no one's taught you that there's a break that you can turn that off, that you can turn that off. So if you're saying you're hypervigilant all the time and you're always kind of ready to to react because you're fearful of what may happen, then how do you quell it? So basically, I think in the in the in the simplicity and the complexity is that, oh, I taught you how to put the brake on. You know how to put your brake on now, don't you, Leslie? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I do think we face in the trauma world itself, we also face a big challenge because like you said, you said earlier, Elaine, about being able to deal with the flashbacks, etc. Um, and we can and, and, and the trauma, that's where the trauma world focuses its attention um, because that's where people are suffering the most with the, those awful waking nightmares in the middle of the night, some of them in the walking day as well. You know, those those walking day flashbacks are absolutely terrifying. Um, and yeah, we do need to heal those, but that isn't everything that needs to be healed, nor is it going to be enough because the vast majority of a population will not have that kind of trauma, but they will have the other um, body trauma that that we know about where it plays out in their actions and reactions in the workplace in the home and um, those exhausting ruminations the um high alert that people live on the paranoic interpretation of what's going on around you that you don't even know is a reaction necessarily to the world you live in or an, a high alertness you don't necessarily know that you think that's normal because it was normal, but it's not normal. And it becomes more and more toxic the longer it goes on. So my, I have a question, a kind of a personal question, you know, and if I ask you a question, Leslie, you don't have to answer it. From your own experience, and I know you've had plenty of trauma during the troubles, is that have you found like learning the skills of being able to even shift and stay or some of the other things have helped you that when those things happen, if you're just walking about and all of a sudden something hits you, that you can now change that experience or not? And, you know, I'm not wedded to your answer. I would just, just to be sure. real. Answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think I'll give you two answers if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so the first is, Elaine, when I met you, you know that I, I was in that PTSD type space yes. with the 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 waking waking flashbacks and the sleeping flashbacks and the screaming nightmares and all of that. And without the skills, I would never have got through that. And I, w I probably wouldn't have been here, but I'm here. So um, much, much appreciate, much appreciate that. Much and much I just want you all to know, and I not only care about her, but I really do love Leslie Carroll. So I'm giving <laughs> a big hug over the over the uh, the airwaves here, Leslie. So go ahead. Yes, but there's Thank another you. part to it too. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean the other the other part is what I'm trying to say, and I probably don't say it um, very well. Is that, and I call it more low level, but and I mean it's more low level because it's not screaming in my head, but there is that more. Um, that ordinary everyday disruption that you begin to notice in your system. And until you start to notice, you don't know the level of it. But the the extra anxiety, the waiting for the person in work who does the the, the 
the flip and, and becomes the what moves from being delightful to not so delightful within five minutes and then you know you you're body is anticipating all of this all of the time and when you begin to read and learn about that you realize that that the skills are something that you can't just in my opinion apply in in a desperate situation there's something you have to live with day and daily and sometimes I can make it work and to be quite honest sometimes I can't and I need more help um and you know there isn't more help. I get through it. I get I get home. I, I do the scales. I sometimes forget, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I get by. Um, but some sometimes it's easier to apply the skills and other than other times because sometimes my body has run away with itself. Right. It's almost like the, the train has left the track and you can't put the brake yeah. on, right? Yeah, I didn't notice in time. I, I didn't didn't apply the skill in time. I knew it was happening. I just didn't bother with it. Uh, you know, whatever. I'm just wondering, I have a follow-up question for you, but now that you know that that's happened, has that yeah. shifted even your awareness going, oh, that happened. So perhaps another time I will be able to put the brake on because before exactly. that, would, and you didn't have the context of what was happening physiologically. That's absolutely spot on. Absolutely spot on. So what what happens is that now I know it's happening, yeah. And I can, I can notice it enough to get to know that I need to do something about it, and I can find a way to do something about it. Might take a while. Might take several applications of the of the the, the skills, or it might might take a new insight or something like that. But. Um, I can notice it happening or or notice it happening more quickly. So sometimes it could have happened, 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 and then I notice. Well, and, so, and sometimes and I'll notice why I'm it's happening. Going, oh but gosh, I'm so glad you can notice that now because then you can do something about it. <laughs> yeah. There's something that happens. Yeah. Again, I'm not wedded to any answer of this, but when we know that that's happening physiologically because of how we're wired, do you think that takes away sometimes the self-blame? And shame that people have in reactions when they don't understand what's happening to them. They may just go, I'm just a weak person. There's something wrong with me. When really something happened to you and there's been a response. If you would just comment about what you think about that. Well, I think that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, so I do spend a lot of my life feeling I could do better. Um, But in those moments where I get that insight from stopping and noticing, um, I, I realize that Maybe I could have done better, but there wasn't that much better I could have done because there was something else in charge and I just need to take back, back charge now. I'm taking back charge now, supplying the skills and bring myself back into balance. And the other thing it does, and, and I, again, and I need to uh, probably, you know, I don't, right, I'm not going to preach a sermon on myself, so I'll not say that. <laughs> but the other thing it does is, <laughs> is give me that insight with colleagues. Yeah. Um, so sometimes, I, I, you know, when, when somebody is being utterly unbearable, when I take the time to notice, I can see their pattern. I can see their reaction. I can see what's taken the lead. And I can almost predict at times when it's just going ahead in a different direction for them. And there, there at least is room for my compassion that there mightn't have been room for it before. Yeah. And I think that's what happens when we learn it, the room for compassion. And that's, I think, part of what maybe also can contribute to healing when we see behaviors that make no sense to us. And 
So, but it makes sense now when you look at to the paradigm of there's a physiological response happening that may have been triggered because or sparked by some thing that reminded that person of something that happened in the past. Sure. It just changes the whole tra- trajectory. So, so then I guess the next question I have for you, because here we are at a time in our world where there is so much suffering. And if you were to say, how do we help what's happening in, um, in Israel and Palestine right now, you know, with the wisdom that you've had in living in a war zone and being a child in the war zone and becoming an adult in the war zone and, and living with survivors and perpetrators, what kind of guidance would you give? Very hard to give guidance to to anybody um, living through that. Uh, I mean, there are a couple of things I would, I suppose, I would say. First of all, before guidance, and one is that I know in every conflict situation in the world there are people who are working for peace, and they didn't just start today. They've been working at it for a long time. So there are women's groups in Jerusalem. And there are women's groups in Gaza who have known each other and built strong relationships over many years. And I know this to be true. And even I didn't know it to be true. I would know it to be true. Um, They have built up strong relationships. And today they will be communicating with each other in the best ways that they can. And they are likely to be talking to their husbands in the armies. Um, Some of them may even be married to the decision makers and in them we put great hope because they have great promise. So there are peacemakers all over the world who are doing their bit even before today and we should take heart from that. Um, We should send them every good wish, good vibe and good prayer that we can. Um, And of course, they won't just be women. Of course, they'll be men and of course, they'll be young people. So those people are already in place. The networks, the potential is already there. So anything that we can do to support any of those networks that we can discover or find. Rise them up. Let people know exist. Because the way the news is how you would be surprised to know that even exists. I just um, talked to two women, one Palestinian and one one Jewish woman who um, are the principal people of an organization called New Ground in, in Los Angeles that are trying to do that very thing. And they've been doing this working towards peaceful and conversation for a long time, more than yeah. the last three weeks, right? It's been, I'm sure, very difficult for them the last three weeks. And, yeah. happening. and certainly in Northern Ireland, we would have had, had uh, and I mean, formal fund, funded government, government provided visits uh, to, to this country from the right wing Jewish parties uh, from the Knesset. Um, and so they've heard, they've heard from people here, who who took up guns against each other and then put the guns down and made peace with each other. So they've heard that. They've heard the stories of religious people and community people and politicians, et cetera, et cetera, um, and, and talked about what the tools of peacemaking are. And some of them, some, I'm sure, quite sure not all of them, but I'm also quite sure that some of them will have taken those tools to heart. So there will be people in in the the religious right parties in Jerusalem, and there will also be people in the religious right 
parties and the religious right groupings in Gaza who who are the same, who will have engaged with peacemaking people from around the world and will have those tools to hand. So I have absolutely no doubt that there are people high up in Hamas and high up in the Jewish government and the Jewish armed forces who will want to see something different and want to see something better. So uh, we remember them too, and we just raise them up into consciousness because I think that makes a world of difference. Um, and, uh, you know, what What can we say to people who are suffering in the way that the children and the young people are? There, there are no words. There are no words in the face of such suffering, and I don't think we should try to put words on it. Well, and I think there has to be so much grief, and I know you have dealt with many, many individuals through your career as a as a as a minister, are there any things that you have found in your experience that can help with the immense grief that people are feeling right now? You know, even in my current role as prisoner ombudsman, one of the things that I do is investigate deaths in custody. Um, and one of the first things I do when, when a death in custody occurs is meet the family of the person who has died. And they will always come in to me with, with really heavy hearts, really deep suffering, as you describe, um, you know, because they've already been cut off from their loved one by the very fact they were taken into custody. Any care that they might have wanted to give them has been limited um, to telephone calls and a few visits and those kinds of things. So the families come with a huge weight on them of guilt as well. Um, and they start off very angry. So people will always start off very angry whenever whenever there is, is suffering and loss. But every single one of those families who comes in to me, by the, by the time we're partway through the investigation or nearing the end of it, they are all saying, we just want it to change so that this doesn't happen to anybody else in the future. With every victim and survivor that I ever met of the Northern Ireland conflict, the one thing everybody could agree on is that that this won't happen again. Let us do something so that this won't happen again. Um, and I think that commonality out of the suffering is something that's really important for us to buy into, doing something so that this won't happen again. So, um, Leslie, those are such wise words. I mean, all the things that you're saying to us that sometimes people want to say something to someone, but there really isn't anything to, there's no words that can heal the degree of their suffering and grief. And then sometimes just even expressing that, that I'm here. Yeah, and just walking with them, just walk with them. Okay. That's all you can do. Yeah. Being present. And I, and I think that that presence too, when you were talking earlier about times when you use the skills and you need something a little bit more, sometimes we need human connection. Um, I remember a woman um, when we have been doing our response to the war in Ukraine and a woman who knows the skills really well, she came on to the, our, our, our daily support call. She said, Elena, I think maybe I'm not learning the skills well enough. And I said, well, why is that? This is all through a translator, by the way. She goes, because I was using all the skills today when the electricity was turned off, but nothing was helping me. And I, and so, and so I asked her, well, are you sitting down right now? Or are you standing? She goes, no, I'm sitting down. I said, well, just, just notice how you're sitting down right at this moment and how we are having this conversation together. So it was about social engagement and also exactly. wanting to know what where she was sitting, which really is a form of inviting her to ground. And as she did that, 
I saw, I heard over the airwaves. I couldn't see her. Of course, she took a deeper breath. I said, oh, did I hear a breath? And she goes, oh, yes, you did. And she goes, <laughs> oh, I can feel myself calming down. Now, I can't take away the pain of the war that she's living no. in. But for that moment, by just being a person who cared and also that knew a little bit about this model, right? A lot about this model that I can yeah. use paradigm in a conversational way to help her. Um, so I think that's such an important thing for us to remember that we don't have to have all the answers or nope. that if anything, just our presence, our genuine, compassionate presence may be enough. Leslie, can you believe it? We only have a few, a few minutes left. I know. I want to say amazing. there's anything that you want to say that you just feel is one of the most important things that you've learned regarding peacemaking and reconciliation besides the beautiful things you've shared so far with us. Um, I mean, I suppose one of the most challenging things when it comes to the world of reconciliation is to allow the suffering of the enemy to be l like your own suffering. So you, you in, in conflict, you want your suffering to be a more just suffering than than the suffering of the perpetrators um, or, or how you see them as perpetrators anyway. But suffering is suffering is suffering is suffering. So that ability to um, meet each other on that human level um, as as the as the very first place of meeting or the core place of meeting, I think is is a really important thing. Um, and and I, I mean, I'm not sure how we do that always, uh, but I do remember um, people involved in the perpetration of violence here would have said would have said to me, "Violence brutalizes us all," you know, and yeah. it does brutalize us all. Uh, that is not to excuse it, not yeah. by any means, uh, but it is to say uh, our human nature is not designed for this destruction of each other. Our human nature is designed for flourishing um, and human flourishing, and we're we're supposed to help and support each other to achieve that. Um, and when we do that, we are better people. And I imagine for some that couldn't happen now, but it may happen yeah. in time. And so there also isn't anything about pushing something. No, when, definitely not. When there's a lack of the ability to even grasp what you just said. And yes, yes and, and yes. So sometimes it's about letting the other person be, you know, so our, our, our judgments maybe have to be held within our own mind. Um, and, and maybe they have to be spoken out as well. You know, it, it, you can still you can meet somebody on a human level and accept that they have suffering, too, without uh, giving up the, the fact that you might need to judge what they did as well. Right. So it's not about, it's like almost like a the way of being human, not excusing what may have happened. Yes. So there's complexity in it. Yeah. Very much. Well, we are at our end. Thank you, Reverend Leslie Carroll, for staying up later in your evening in Northern Ireland to be with us to share your wisdom. And I'm just going to um, suggest that if anybody would like to get a hold of you, to please send me an email at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. And I will send it on to Leslie so you could communicate directly with her. But I have certainly had many blessings in my life as I've traveled around the world with the trauma resiliency model. But I would say, Leslie, unequivocally, that you have been one of the blessings of my life. And I'm looking you, to spending time with you in just a little bit. So 
Thank you, my dear friend. Yes, it'll be good to see you. Thank you. And this is Elaine Miller-Karras signing off for Resiliency Within and reminding all of my listeners to remember some of the wisdom that she's saying. It's not easy sometimes to have compassion for the perpetrator. I would say not easy. It can be the most difficult thing. And so, but remember what else may be true about how you want to walk into the world and 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 really stepping forth in compassion. Not always easy, but seems so essential. So thank you very much. Until we meet again, Elaine Miller-Karis signing off. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karis, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller-Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.